So here's what we're doing. We're getting into chapter 7. We're going to look at verses 1 through 6 today, but in order to do that, we need to back up and we need to get some traction to where we were going. So I'm going to ask you to take your Bibles and turn back to Romans 3. I have all my notes written down, so I have to stay back here for a while. I know. So I'm going to go through this quickly to recap, because the reason is, in Romans 7, we get into the idea of all of a sudden the law pops up again. The law. Why in the world is Paul bringing the law back up in his argument? Well, let's get a running start so that we can understand. If you remember, a while back we dealt with chapter 1. We have an introduction, and then we have a declaration made that the whole world is guilty before God because they refuse to honor him. They refuse to give him the glory he deserves. And instead, people try to cultivate unrighteousness and then suppress that unrighteousness by acts of unrighteousness. It's almost like being doubly counted out uh, in in their situation. Then in chapter two, he moves to the idea of people that would be self-righteous and would judge others, would stand in judgment against other people. And he says, not for a moment should we think just because you are able to look at someone else and say that what they have done is sin, that you are free of sin yourself. Everyone who seeks to be self-righteous is also condemned. Then we move into chapter three, and he brings up this very interesting portion. He says, not one is righteous, not one seeks after God. There is no desire amongst them. It's beyond their power. So when we move into chapter 3, we're going to look at verses 19 through 21 to just get a running start. And I want you to observe the things that go on about the law. We're not going to spend a ton of time on it so that we can get to our text at hand. Chapter 3, verse 19, look what it says. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. Why? So that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. In other words, the law sets such a standard of perfection that no one can argue against its righteous declarations and absolve themselves of any wrongdoing. It's impossible. But watch what happens here. Verse 20, because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. I'm going to ask you a trivia question. So, so, So pay attention. You ready? By the works of the law... What can't happen? No. What does the text say? No. What does the text say? No flesh can be what? Answer's right here, guys. No, you didn't. I'm trying to get you to the point where you understand no flesh can be justified. None. No one. No one. Now, does this make the offer of salvation exclusive? No, it's for everyone, but it has to be for everyone because no one can attain a righteousness with God apart from it. So the law stands as a barrier to God. It's good, it's righteous, it's holy, it's perfect. We can't argue with it. We just look at it and say, yep, I did that. Yep, I did that. Yep, I did that. It's one of the reasons why we don't study the Old Testament. Let's just know how wrong we are. So our problem in getting to God, if you think about it, is the law. Maybe. Watch how this works. 
But by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. How do you know what's wrong? The law will tell you. God will let you know. But now here's the great part. Verse 21, but now apart from the law, apart from what? The law, didn't we say the law is kind of what's standing in our way to God? Okay, so now this is talking about something that's going on away from the law. Okay, the law has no part in this. Now watch this. But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God, that's what we're all sorely lacking in our unregenerate states. The righteousness of God has been, what's the word? Manifested, and we know that is what? The Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ is the very manifestation of the righteousness of God. And he is manifested as such to where it's separate from the law. Is the law of God righteous? Absolutely it is. In fact, it's letting us know how unrighteous we are because it's so righteous. And so that becomes a problem about how you get to God. But here's a great thing. God provides a way. Apart from the law, come over on this side. You now have God has manifested his righteousness in a different way. And in fact, here's what's interesting is, all the law can do is condemn you. It cannot save you. Jesus Christ can condemn you, yes? Yeah, there were a lot of people who came and, and, you know, have mercy on me, Lord, I'm a sinner. There's a lot of people that came in contact with Jesus that recognized their depraved state. But what's amazing about this manifestation of the righteousness of God is it can actually redeem. That's the difference. That's the difference here. So what do we need to understand first off? Number one, the law can accuse you and condemn you. It cannot save you. So God manifests his righteousness in a different and better way. And that is through a person. The person of Jesus Christ is the righteousness of God. That's what we need to understand. Now skip forward to chapter five, verse 20. See, a lot of you starting to sweat thinking I'm gonna go through that whole thing. Chapter five, verse 20. Paul is talking here about the danger of sin. He's talking about sin and the believing life. Remember, the idea of being justified and the term salvation are two different things in Romans. Salvation in Romans does not mean go to heaven when you die. It does not. So when you read it, that will help you clear out your mind a little bit, not thinking that salvation always means go to heaven. It does not in Romans. So it says here, verse 20, let's look at this. The law came in so that the transgression would increase. The law amplifies our sin. The law makes it even more manifest. Now, why is he using this argument? He brings up something interesting. From Adam until Moses, people died. And why did people die? Because of? sin. Sin brings about death. But what was interesting was, is there was no codified measures of which to distinguish that sin. We just know that the relevance of sin working in people is evidence because they all met their demise. Everybody got that? So when you bring a standard into the situation, it blows it up so that it's, I don't even know what to say. You can't get around it. You can't help but to see how wrong we are. Now, you probably remember this illustration. I've always likened it to the idea, if you get up here and you play with an acoustic guitar, you're going to hear a little bit of a sound, 
maybe not much, but if you come up here with a massive stack of amplifiers and you plug it in and you turn it up to 11 for all my Spinal Tap friends out there, and you rock out an A chord, it is going to blow all of us through the wall. The law is the amplifier for our sin. It blows it up. Don't play guitar favorites with me, Roxanne. Calm down. Roxanne, turn to 1 John 1, 9 in your Bible. Okay. So notice verse 20. The law came in. Why? So that the transgression would abound. And you say, oh my gosh, there's a lot of hopelessness there. Except for the beautiful word, but in the scriptures. I love the word, but in scripture. Because it lets me know you're going one way, flip around and go the other. Here it is. But where sin increased, what happened? Grace abounded. Grace superabounded. However much sin that was revealed that you had because the law was exposing you for all that you were, guess what? Grace infinitely exceeded that bounds of what you saw yourself. If you looked at yourself and you said, good grief, I've got so much sin. Guess what? You look out a little bit further and grace keeps going. That's the beauty of what God has done. So notice, grace abounded all the more. So the introduction of the law shows us that our sin is exceedingly sinful. But thank God that grace is greater than our sin. Now turn over to Romans 6. We're going to look at verses 5 through 7. Romans 6, verses 5 through 7. For if we have become united with him. Now let me ask you a question. When you believe in Christ, do you become united with him? You do. So that if there is not, if it's not raining, we'll have a picnic. It's not that. It is since. It is stating a truth. It's letting you know the facts of the situation. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, we died with him. Certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old self was what? Crucified. Now remember this truth that Romans preaches. The blood deals with sins, the multiple offenses that we've committed against God. The cross deals with sin, singular the nature within us that wants to do wrong that manifests itself in the sins that we commit. So the old self not only has Jesus' blood that pays for it, but we died with Christ on the cross. And any time that this flesh wants to rise up and commit sins through us because of the sin nature, it is to be crucified with Christ as it already is. Is. In other words, we are to live in light of the facts of our crucifixion with him. So it says here, verse 6, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. Everybody see that word done away? Pay attention to it because it's going to come up later. The idea is, is that it's made powerless. The idea is, is that when we died with Christ on the cross, the light switch, the power source to our sin was flipped off. No more. The old man is moved out of the spirit and the Holy Spirit comes in the clean house and indwells alongside our spirit and our spirit is actually righteous before God. Soul, body, still needs a lot of help. Spirit, A-OK, because God's taking care of it. Is everybody with me? 
Okay, I can't see your joy because of the masks, but that's okay. So, look at real quick at Romans 11. Forgive me. Mitch, I don't think I have this on there, but everybody can look at it in their Bibles. If you remember this, we need to know that we're dead to sin. Everybody remember that? And here's what it says. Even so, consider yourselves, reckon yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Start thinking of yourself as God has declared you. Start believing what God has said about you. Start understanding that you are who God says that you are, not who you feel to be. That's how the F train gets out of whack. I have a good quote from Watchman Nee. He says, the flesh is too bad to be cleansed. It must be crucified. We have to come to reckonings with that. It's never about us being made better, about us getting our act together. That is impossible. You can never get your act together. And if you feel the frustration because you can't just get it right, then great. Jesus has you right in the tension that you need to be to finally give up and rest in him and let him begin to live his life through you. That is the Christ life. Now, verse 12. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. Now notice, this is a command, but it also lets you know that it's something that you can choose to do or to not do. As a believer in Christ, you can choose to let sin reign in your mortal body. You say, well, how in the world is that possible if they're truly saved? Just because they're saved doesn't mean they're free of sin. Jesus has dealt with sin. We've died to sin, but it's important for us to recognize sin didn't die to us. Sin is still alive and well and wants to pull us down every opportunity it gets. This is why Satan runs around trying to tempt people. Anybody ever noticed that with all the innocence that you muster and bringing to the news feed, when you check your phone or the internet, all of a sudden you can see Satan just knitting a sweater of sin all throughout it? Anybody? Oh, yeah. And you say, what is going on? Am I in crazy town? Yes. You are. We live in a crazy world. And the reason is, is because it has been orchestrated purposefully and carefully by the father of lies. So we got to be aware of this because it's real easy for us to take our hand off the wheel and go, you know what? I'm just going to let sin do its thing, whatever. It drags us in. Next thing you know, sin is reigning. It is ruling. It is dominating. So it says here, therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. And do not go on, here it is, presenting, if you got the old King James, yielding. Do not go on yielding the members of your body. The sin is instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. Because you are dead to sin and because you are alive to God through Christ Jesus, how are you presenting your body? Are you offering it to sin so that more sin will conjure up? Or are you offering it to the Lord saying, Lord, use me because of who I am now in Christ. It all comes down to your identity. And here's what I want you to get. Watch this because I want you to see these comparisons. We need to understand verse 14 if we're going to understand what we're looking at in chapter 7. For sin shall not be master, shall not have dominion, shall not rule over you. Why? For you are not under what? You're not under the law anymore, but under what? Now I want you to watch this. If we were to set up two columns here on the stage and we had one that was listed law and we had another that was listed grace, under the law category, we would put sin and we would put flesh. 
get this, it's not that the law is bad. The law is holy and righteous. But when we start living in such a way as to try to gain the favor of God by our actions, whether to be saved and go to heaven when we die, or to live a righteous life, it falls in the category of law. Sin, flesh, and let's add another one, death. That's all that happens there. That's all that can be cultivated there. So notice the distinguishment that he's giving here. Sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under the law. You're not in this category anymore. You have been transferred to the category of grace. And when we talk about the category of grace, this is where we are talking about Christ living his life through us, things like walking in the spirit, all of that. You with me? Okay, want to make sure. I want to give you a good quote. In fact, I would say this. This is one of the best books I've ever read in my life. It's called Life on the Highest Plane by Ruth Paxson. It is fantastic. It's three volumes originally when it was written in the 30s. All three volumes are in this one. You can find it on the internet. If you don't have a copy of this book, get it. She explains these things way plainer than anyone ever could. It's fantastic. Mitch, can we bring up the first Paxson quote? The believer is so united with Christ in his death that he enters into precisely the same relationship to sin that Christ enjoys. Now, what does she mean by that? Christ Jesus was never dead in sins. Were you and I dead in sins? We were. That was the problem we started out with. That was never Christ. Christ was always perfect from the beginning, right? He always has been. He always will be. So notice, he was never dead in sins. The Lamb of God was without spot and blemish, for there were no sins in him, or there's no sin in him. But as the last Adam, the representative man, the sinner's substitute, he was in a very real sense made sin for us. So here's the great exchange that takes place. We were sinners, not just in what we did, but by our very constitution depraved. And now Jesus has made it possible for us to be in a standing of righteousness like Jesus enjoyed always in eternity past. In other words, because we are so united to him, our relationship to sin is the exact same as his relationship to sin. There is no difference. Now, why you are not saying amen to that, I don't know. Because that's good. Because it helps me realize I don't have to sin in that situation. I've been redeemed from all of that stuff. That's how it used to be. This is especially helpful when Satan gets in your mind and wants to run around and tell you all kinds of lies about yourself. You're dumb, you're ugly, you're stupid, nobody wants to hang out with you, you're good for nothing, you're worthless, all this stuff. That is the enemy feeding that garbage into your mind. But when you separate the law, which is going to lead us in death, because that's the best we can do is come up with death, or you think about lavish grace over you. Next thing you know, you got every reason to take those thoughts captive and to recognize who you are because of what Jesus says, not because of what Satan's trying to pull on you. That's the difference. I have the same relationship to sin now that Jesus does. He doesn't have any part of it, and neither do I. That's a good place to start from. That's a great place to start from. So now look at 15 and 16. What then? And here's the question that he's going to begin answering again in 7. Shall we sin because we're not under law but under grace? He said, no, may it never be. Sin has no place in this. But then he gives us a little warning here. Watch what happens. Do you not know that when you present yourselves as someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in what? 
death. And that's in the category of what? Nope. The law. Okay. So if you decide that you are going to present your flesh for sinful uses, guess what? You can be sure that death, destruction, depravity, whatever you want to say, is the end result of that situation. But look how he moves this. Either sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness. And I don't know about you, but that's where I want to be. Resulting in righteousness, presenting ourselves. Now look down in verse 20. I'm sorry, verse 21, or no, 20. 20, let's do 20. It kills me because it starts with a causal conjunction. Hold on. For when you were slaves to sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. In other words, before you knew about the righteousness of God, all you did was sin because you could do nothing else, yes? So now watch this. He gives a very good reasoning here that leads us into seven because the chapter break is horrible. Verse 21, therefore... What benefit were you deriving from the things which you are now ashamed? For the outcome of those things is what? Death. And that fits in the category of what? The law. Notice that. Verse 22. But now, having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit. What comes out of that? Resulting in sanctification. In other words, holiness happens is the idea. When you present, when you recognize that you're dead to sin, alive to God in Jesus Christ, your Lord. And then you present your body as an instrument for righteousness, holiness happens. You don't have to make holiness happen. You don't have to pursue holiness like a lot of people talk about. The idea is just recognizing your identity in Christ and presenting yourself for righteous purposes, and then God's going to do the growth. Now, this is important to understand. You and I don't grow ourselves. Thanks for the grace, Lord. Sit down. I got it. No, that's the whole reason why the book of Galatians was written. You and I cannot conjure holiness. God develops it and orchestrates it in our lives in light of our standing. There's nothing we can do for that. So now moving on here, he says, but now having been freed from sin and slave to God, you derive your benefit resulting in sanctification, holiness, and the outcome, eternal life. And remember, eternal life in Romans does not mean the gift. It's talking about the prize. What is to be earned for a life well-lived in the coming kingdom? Not the free gift of eternal life that is given. Verse 23, for the wages of sin is what? And that falls in the category of what? The law. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. What category does that go in? Grace. Now, the guy who was riding on his horse and was put in chapter and verse numbers, Thank you for him, because it makes it easier to memorize scripture, but good googly, he messed this one up. Chapter numbers and verse numbers are not inspired by God, so we can say it without messing up our conscience. Here we go. Or do you not know, brethren, for I'm speaking to those who know the law, that the law has jurisdiction over a person as long as he lives? Everyone in here is living, yes? Are we under the laws of the land? Your mask gives you away. Right? Okay. So we can relate to this immediately. Okay, as long as I'm alive, the law's got me. But now he's going to give an interesting illustration. Watch this. Verse 2. For, here's the explanation. There's your causal conjunction. The married woman is bound by law to her husband while he is living. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law concerning the husband. Now, I'm a little uncomfortable at some of the smiles I saw through the masks from you ladies. If he dies, I'm free. 
Watch out, Laverne. All right. <laughs> Just kidding. Just kidding. Cheryl's going to beat me later. All right. For the married woman is bound by law to her husband while he is living. Now, this first husband, Paul's giving an illustration of the law. If you're born into this life and you don't have salvation, so immediately we're depraved in the situation, we automatically fall into this category of law. Law is where we start. That's the expectation set before us. That is the understanding of letting us know just how wrong we are. So the first husband here in his illustration is law. Now watch how this works. For the married woman, that's us, is bound by law to her husband, that's the law of God, while he is living. While the law is active, we are bound to it. But if her husband dies, if the law dies, She is released. And what's interesting is that word released is the same thing we saw in chapter 6, verse 6. Made powerless is the idea that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. It's the same idea. The body of sin might be done away with. If that's the case, then we are set free. We're released from the law concerning husband number one, the law. Everybody got that? Good illustration. Verse 3, so then, if while her husband, the law, is living, she is joined to another man. Which in the Greek, that is naughty, right? Shouldn't be doing that. But another man, anybody want to guess who the other man is? It's Jesus Christ. Now watch this illustration. If while her husband, number one, the law, is living, she's joined to another man, Jesus Christ, number two, she shall be called a what? An adulteress. We can think of all kinds of serious implications that surround that. Unfaithful. Having defiled the marriage bed is what we would say. But if her husband dies, if the law dies, she is what? She's free from the law. Why? So that she is not an adulteress, though she's joined to another man, to Christ. So the question is, is how does the law die in order for us to get with Jesus Christ in the grace category? Can the law die? The law cannot die. That's our great problem. It's the word of God. In fact, uh, Mitch, bring it up. Matthew 5, verse 18. Here's what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount about this. Matthew. Love it. So cool. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, Not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. The law is enduring. The law is perfect. The law is established. The law is holy. When the law speaks, you have to listen. So now we got a problem. Now here's the interesting thing to think about. Is it that husband number one is bad? Is that the problem? Husband number one's not bad. It's the law. Strict? Yeah, probably, right? But wrong? No. Got something to say about every inch of your life? Yes. Oh my gosh. And after a while, you probably go, I wish he would just die. 1 John 1, 9. But not wrong. See, that's what's interesting. Is when you come to husband number one, you got to look and you go, uh, 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 uh. 
that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world accountable to God. So the path through the law is never a way to get righteousness, the righteousness of God. So now what has to happen? Thankfully, it's our memory verse. Look at verse four. Therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law. See, here's the amazing thing. Was it that husband one died? No, it's that the wife had to die. Think about that. The wife had to die. Because that relationship right there cannot be continued in. Because it keeps going to sin and death. Sin and death. Sin and death. Not just when we talk about being born into this world. We're talking about how you live your Christian life as well. You cannot live your Christian life by a checklist. I've heard so many people say, well, the law, the moral law, is still in effect today. Number one, the scriptures never divide the law into three parts. It's always taken as a whole. Number two, Paul's pretty clear. Law can't help you. Law can't make you holy. The law will not save you. It cannot make you holy. It's important for us to understand this, guys, because there's a lot of lies out there about it. So notice, so also you were made, and notice that that's passive. In other words, we were put to death. When were we put to death? With who? With Christ. Notice you were put to death. You were made to die to the law, to husband number one. Why? Through the body of Christ, and that's talking about his literal body, his dying on the cross, not the church as the body of Christ. What's the reason? So that you may be joined to another. In other words, the wife had to die But the great thing about Jesus is, is he didn't stay dead, did he? He resurrected, and not only did he resurrect to a new life, he also gave you and I a newness of life. Guess what? New life, new marriage. You have a new husband. That's the beauty of it. This is why we talk about this imagery of the marriage supper of the Lamb. Christ receiving his bride. What's all that born in? It's all born in the acts of the cross. And what God has accomplished for us on Jesus' behalf. And notice he doesn't ask anything from you for it. You simply believe and it's yours. You simply respond to the gospel message. Notice it says that you might be joined to another, to him who was raised from the dead. Why? In order that we may bear fruit to God. This is a fruit that is brought forth not from law keeping and legal demands. The fruit of that is what? Death. Notice what the fruit is. It's a fruit that can only produce in one way. What's the category? Grace. That's the only way it can be produced. It's got to be grace-based fruit. In fact, I would say this, is that if you're trying to operate your Christian life in any way apart from the eternal life that you have received, it is unproductive and disappointing. Sometimes if we wonder why we don't have power in the Christian life, It's because we're not letting God's power rule through us. We're trying to do it all in our own power. I say break those oars in half and throw them overboard and let Jesus guide the ship. Leave it alone. Rest in him and he will bring holiness about in your life. I know that seems so counterintuitive because everything we do in our lives, I got to get in here and I got to do this. I got to plan that. I got to make that happen. I got to work. Life's exhausting enough as it is. Don't complicate it by trying to earn your holiness. You cannot. You have died to the law. 
you have died to all requirements and stipulations placed upon you. Why? Because you have been resurrected into a grace category. And his grace is sufficient. Verse 5, 4. While we were in the flesh, or we could say it this way since we know our categories, while we were under the law, while we were actively participating in pursuing sin, while we were living life for ourselves, while we were seeing that the end of everything we were doing is death. The sinful passions which were aroused by the law, by husband number one, thanks a lot, husband number one, were at work in the members of our body. Stop for a second. Were at work in the members of our body. Where did we see that type of language go on? Chapter 6, verse 14, right? That's what it comes back to. Look back at 614 real quick. Don't lose it. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under the law, but under what? Grace. And all of that is contingent upon how you move forward in presenting the members of your body. Well, think about that with verse 5. While you're in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for what? That's the best you can do. That's the best you can do is death. Now, is that depressing or what? The best you will ever do in life is death. Period. And the law further encourages and provokes the conscience to recognize I'm in so much trouble. See, this is why the righteousness of God was needed apart from the law. That Jesus died in the likeness of our flesh, lived a life and was tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. Why? Because he is our spotless lamb. His blood is what we plead. And when the flesh wants to arouse us and try to move us towards sin, we crucify it because we can now. You couldn't do that here. Do you realize this? Over here, you could do nothing but sin. The people of this world, why are they scrambling? Because death is the best option you have. You're just trying to prolong it a little bit longer. Now let me pause for a moment and step up on a soapbox and make a political comment. Turn the recording off? I don't care. I want everybody to hear this. It is shameful that we've come to the conclusion where we're voting for the lesser of two evils. And here's the reason why. It's shameful because of what that position of responsibility has become. It's not respected anymore. There is no dignity found there. Integrity is lost, period. Let's recognize it for what it is. But number two, the fact that we're going to step forward and still vote for something that we're readily admitting that it's evil. That's on us. That's on you and that's on me. Well, we're just going to have to vote for the lesser of two evils. Do you really have a clear conscience in moving forward in that direction? Some of you don't like the fact that I say that, but I think it's important for the people of God to understand exactly where they stand in this situation. Because we would be making a vote to perpetuate insanity. And forgive the bluntness of this, but honestly, from the way I see it in Scripture, to hell with the whole system. Because that's what it's based out of. That's who's running the show. That's where it's all orchestrated at. And there is no righteousness there. So why don't we opt to pray instead? Because us being, me being in a voting box is not going to help a darn thing. 
me on my knees seeking for God's guidance for our country. We don't need a new leader in place. We don't need the old leader to do better. We need revival. That's what we need. We need the Holy Spirit to be the difference here. We cannot settle for garbage. It's ridiculous. Because get ready, they're going to classify us in the next two months while the evangelical vote is doing this. How great would it be is we can't find the evangelicals anywhere (laughs) except in their churches because they're on their knees praying because we've recognized that no one is our Savior but Christ. See, this all boils down to how we operate in grace. Are we actually going to entertain this law business and how we apply it to our lives? Even in something that would seem as minuscule as an election. Think about it. Think about it. It's fruit for death. Verse 6. But now, thank you God for the word but. But now we have been released from the law. We've been released from husband number one. Having died, notice who died, we had to die, to that by which we were bound. Why? So that we serve in the newness of the Spirit, not the oldness of the letter. See, it's not just a whole new way of living, it's a whole new way of serving. It is a grace-based means of living. And that is what this world is missing. They are missing the salt and light that we are supposed to be in the category of grace. Not because we're acting like the world a little bit, but we're slightly different. Well, they're supposed to know that we love Jesus by the way that we love one another. Guys, the world's not seeing that. Because we're not operating in this category. Well, they'll know because my lifestyle is different. They're not seeing that. Because we still make choices over here. We still make choices that bring about death. And it's enough. As sure as I can be in my heart, let me tell you, if you are stuck in this law category, accept the death of Jesus Christ for your justification and your sanctification and let him be your holiness. Rest in him. Rest in him. That's grace. Let me give you one more quote from this fine lady. She is quite saucy. Let's bring it up. She gets my fire going. I love it. It is the function of grace to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. It is the work of grace to undo the work of sin. Sin made us unholy. Grace makes us holy. Grace always operates through Jesus Christ who dwells within us in the very perfection of his own holiness through the power of the Holy Spirit. Keep going, Mitch. Does this not show how needless and futile are our efforts to compel ourselves to live well-pleasing unto God, to achieve victory over sin through good resolutions or through willpower, and to live a holy life through legal bondage to certain principles or practices? The way of sanctification is as simple as the way of salvation. As truly as Christ is our Savior, just so truly He is our sanctification. Our part is to believe and receive. That's it. 
You've trusted God to go to heaven when you die. You've trusted that he's going to save you until the end. Do you trust him to live today? Do you trust him to operate now? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the mercy that you've shown to us in your word. We thank you, God, for Romans 7 that declares our death to the category of law and that we can leave sin and flesh and death behind because we are in a category of grace and we can now serve in the newness of the Spirit. We can now rest in our perfect sanctifier, Jesus Christ. Thank you, God, that he is so much more than Savior. We desperately need him as Savior, yes, but we also desperately need him as truth, as the way, as the life, as our power, as our sanctifier. Thank you, God, that our new husband is perfect, that he loves to the uttermost, that he cares for us in the deepest way, that he desires intimacy with us that is free of sin and blemish and shame, that he has placed us in a ground of complete acceptance before your holy eyes. Father, how wonderful it is to be a child of the King. Thank you, Lord, that in Christ you killed every one of us so that we don't have to continue on with the junk, but instead we've been raised to newness of life. You are glorious. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. It's in Jesus' name. Amen.